you are welcome to open up a paper Bible if you have one, or your Bible on your phone, uh, or we'll have most of the scripture up on the screen looking at 1 Corinthians 2 today. Uh, we already read verse 31 of chapter 1, and then chapter 2 begins with, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. So you got the boasting game going on. Have you ever been around a boasting game? One person boasts and then another boasts, another boasts, and you feel like you have to boast in order to stay up with everybody else. It's like a competition. Paul says straight up in verse one, I'm not playing that game, and I'm not gonna boast. In fact, I'm gonna be intentional to be like the anti-boastful preacher. Um, he says, I'm intentionally not coming to you with eloquence, with what he calls human wisdom. I'm coming to you specifically with weakness, great fear and trembling. Uh, he's really downplaying his approach. He's saying, I'm rejecting the metrics of the world, and I'm gonna rely on God's hidden metrics. And I know for me as a pastor, let me tell you, first of all, some of this series is just for me. I get to pick the series and I need God to do a work in my life, so why not kill two birds with one stone, right? Uh, I always want my sermons to be funny. I want them to be engaging. I want them to be great. And it, it is very difficult to impossible to do that uh, consistently, especially to the same people who hear you uh, every single week. And I can get insecure about that. I can get insecure about uh, how good the sermons are. And let me tell you, this passage is very reassuring. I might be doing something wrong. I maybe should just try to be uh, non-impressive. Paul is like, I'm just gonna be non-impressive on purpose. And I left verse two out of this section because we're gonna look at that as our next point. Uh, but our first point that I want you to get, and I got a few of these that are gonna be on the screen. Uh, if you're taking notes, these are things you could write down. Uh, or go back and, and, and summarize later. Uh, we need to learn to operate by God's hidden metrics, not the world's. And I think it's really important because when we look at the world, the world is a really dark place and it's easy like the psalmists uh, who look at, um, the psalmists would look at what they would call evil people and say, why do, why does, why do these evil people prosper? You know, why are they prospering and yet, and then look at me or look at the church or you know, whatever it may be. And we just, 1 Corinthians is gonna help us operate by God's hidden metrics, not the world's. When I say metrics, I mean the things that matter. So in an economy, a metric would be money, or uh, it, would, it would be, in, on social media, your metric would be how many followers you have, how many likes you have. These are metrics. Okay, so we're gonna learn to operate by God's hidden metrics, not the world's. Now here's the verse that I left out last time. Verse two, as Paul's talking about approaching ministry, approaching the church with this intentional weakness, instead of boasting about himself, instead of propping up himself, I'm so good, I'm so strong, here's what he says in verse two, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Whoa, right? Now, I think that's a figure of speech to a degree because Paul taught about a lot of other things than just the crucifixion of Jesus. He taught about a lot of other theology and commands and things like that. But there's certainly a point here that I think if we understood it, we would, re we would reinvent American Christianity. 
And I think American Christianity needs a reinvention, uh, like we talked about last week, just like the church at Corinth needed a reinvention. And uh, he, what he's saying here is, I, I'm, I'm going to only know while I'm with you Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't think that meant uh, every sermon he preached was just on Jesus Christ and him crucified, though I do think that needs to be a part of every message uh, that we have. But he's talking about all the things the church can be known for, power and metrics and the measurables versus what some authors today call cruciform love. Cruciform love is the love that Jesus has for us when he's dying on the cross. And it is the love that we are to show the world. It is the love that we are to show others is cruciform love. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified lived out in our daily lives. Another thing I love about verse two is if you are in a, a stage of deconstructing your faith, if you're struggling with the Bible, if you're struggling with certain theological concepts, you're struggling with the, the, the um, status of the church today, I love this verse because it encourages you and it encourages me to look at Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let that be your focus and build your faith on that. Build your faith on Jesus Christ and him crucified and, and just let everything else fall away. Focus on that and I promise you God will be faithful to fill in the rest. So point number two, let your life and your church be defined by cruciform love. If someone looked at your life, would they say that person's life is defined by cruciform love? They love people the way Jesus loves. That's how they love people. Or would they look at a church and say that church loves people the way Jesus loves? That's a, that's a high, high bar, isn't it? But it's also a bar that you don't have to boast to get to. It's a bar that the way to get to this bar is by surrender and sacrifice and selflessness. It's a backwards way of, uh, of getting there. All right, so... Uh, highlighting the verse four now. Uh, there's a lot of stuff packed into these first five verses. Uh, it talks about, he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So I wanna know how to do this. How do I rest on the Spirit's power how do I rest on God's power instead of on my power? That's really hard to do. The first step is to remove the human boasting. Paul gets that out of the way first. Get rid of the human showing off, the human metrics. These are the things that look successful in the world's eyes. And then we see God's power in the cross. And we let that be enough. God's power hanging on the cross is enough. And in doing this, to, to, the only way to, for me to rely on the Spirit's power is to recognize true weakness. If we go before God and we say, yeah, God, I'm weak, I need you, but inside we really think, I'm not really that weak. <laughs> In fact, I'm pretty sweet. I think you kind of need me, God. Um, I'm guilty of that at times. That is gonna block our ability to, to rely on God's power. So this is a picture of true and utter weakness. Uh, this would be how I would have answered question number two in the discussion question time. And I've used this, these photos before, and I will continue to use these photos for the rest of my ministry life because I've had three ACL surgeries. Each one takes about a year to rehab, and I will milk them for every sermon illustration that I possibly can. 
uh, the rest of my life because I earned it. I, I've earning them in those photos, and uh, I earned, I've earned them. So I will continue to use these. Now, I've torn my ACL three times. I went right, left, right, uh, retore the right one. It was 2009, 10, and 12. And so those photos were taken somewhere uh, between 2009, 10, and 12. When I tore my ACLs, my, my wife's uh, not here today. She's out of town. Uh, but she would say amen to this that I was utterly helpless <laughs> and I could not do anything. If I would have tried to do anything, I would, have, I would have helplessly fallen to the ground. I could put no weight on that leg. And, and I mean, for the first week, I was completely uh, bedridden. I, was, I mean, just literally had to lay in bed. The only time I could get up uh, was to go to the bathroom. And uh, it, was, it was a very, very, very helpless state. Now, this posture that I'm in here needs to be our prayer posture. This needs to be our recognition of reality when it comes to my posture before God. I cannot save myself. I literally cannot save myself. I need Jesus to do it for me. I, I can't run a church on my own strength. I can't be a Christian on my own strength. So when I go to God in prayer, it's not going to God in my strength, it's going to God in realizing my utter spiritual weakness before him. If I can acknowledge that and get this idea of human boasting out of the way, then I make room for God's strength to rely on his spirit and his strength as we see in these first six verses. So when you, when you look at all six of these verses, including verse 31, uh, a couple of things stand out. One, I want, I want to be clear, this is not a moral lesson that you tell your kids. Like, don't boast, you know, don't, don't be boastful when you're playing basketball. That's fine, that's not what this is talking about. This is about relying on ourselves versus relying on God. It's one of the two. Am I relying on myself or am I relying on God? So point, I think we're on number three here. We're learning to rely on God's power, not on our own power. We're learning to rely on God's power, not on my own power. Uh, this is about seeing God, how he does not operate by the world's metrics of what matters. And I, we do this in the church all the time as a church planter. Uh, how many people do you have at church? How much money is coming in? Um, you know, down the road, if you get a building in a church, everybody cheers. You pay off the building, everybody cheers. We are humans who operate by the world's metrics. Uh, and some of those metrics are good. You know, they can, God can use them for good things. But let's be real. We, we get drunk on those metrics as if that's the metric of true discipleship, the metric of what matters. But God doesn't operate on those metrics. He operates on his metrics in his timing, and he does his work in a way that we, we can't even conceive, especially when we get out of the way and we say, God, I can't do this on my own. Because you, you can build a church on your own strength. It's possible. You can do it and be very impressive and, and attract people, and, and, and you don't even need God. And, and uh, I think that happens. I think that, that can happen. Mark, I'm, I'm, I don't know why my remote is paused. There we go. God is going to operate by his hidden metrics, not by the world. We'll try this one more time here. All right. Um, to verse 6. 
Paul says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, this is such a true statement that I often forget in my daily life. I think I remember this better when I was younger, when I was a teenager and I was, I was younger in my faith. I had a very heaven-saturated mindset. I, I, I was witnessing to my friends. I was telling them about Jesus. The realities of heaven and hell were very fresh in my mind. And it's not that they're not fresh in my mind anymore as a pastor. We're certainly sharing the gospel regularly. But Paul just had a very clear sense of the eternal versus the temporal. And I think as I get older into my adult years, it's easier, uh, it's, been, it's been easier to just see the temporal because it's all around me. And Paul had this way of teaching, and he says, look, there's a wisdom of this age. There's rulers of this age. Think about being a ruler in that age. I mean, that was the top of the totem pole when it came to power, status, celebrityism, to be a ruler of this age. He says, it's all coming to nothing. I want you to think, and maybe you do know this. I don't know. Um, I want, I'm wondering, does anyone here know the names of their great-grandparents? So not your grandparents, but your great-grandparents. Anyone know the names of their great-grandparents? Okay, all four of them? Okay, Mr. Family Tree over there. How about your great-great-grandparents? Anyone? Dennis, you, you know, like, your lineage back to Adam and Eve, so... Outside of Dennis, <laughs> it only takes a few generations for everybody to forget about you, even your own family, right? We, we strive to be celebrities of the moment. Maybe you do or maybe you don't. I think on small scales, though, we all do. We strive to be significant. We strive for the temporal, and three, four generations later, five generations maybe, your own family doesn't even remember you. The, the rulers of the age are coming to nothing. We're striving for these worldly metrics. I'm striving for these worldly metrics. It's kind of like the stock market. I don't do a lot with the stock market, but I, but I know that those lines go up and down, and when the line's going up, that's good. It means your stock's making money. And if you cash out when it's at the top, you'd get, you'd get money. It's bad when the stock goes down. It, it crashes down and you lost all your money, right? And, and it feels like that's what Paul's talking about when you have the metrics of this world that are temporal, the rulers of this age. Their stock is high. It's up high. And it seems like that's the stock I should be riding. Jesus' stock is hidden. Uh, it looks on our metric scale like it's low. It doesn't look like it's doing a whole lot. But there's a cash out date coming. And when the cash out date comes, Paul's saying something that we as Christians know, it's just really hard to live. That the rulers of this world, the temporal stock, it will crash and be worth nothing when the cash out date comes when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, his stock, that if we've stayed with that stock this whole time, no saying I believe that the stock actually has value, is going to be at the top of the chart when it's cash out date. And scripture testifies to this. Uh, Matthew 6, 19 to 20 tells us, this is Jesus' words. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then 1 Corinthians 15, this is later in our book, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. I mean, I, I, I like that verse because it says, um, there's a, our faith is in Jesus. And if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, which is 1 Corinthians 15, we ought to be pitied that we're, we're not living for the metrics of this world. And, and that's, that's Paul's teaching to us, is, is what does it look like to walk in Jesus' hidden metrics? Value what lasts. For us, as we walk through how to live out these metrics, we have to reevaluate what is it that lasts. And are you putting your time, your talents, and your treasure into what lasts or into what is temporal, what the moth and the rust will destroy? And I, let me see clearly, too, it's not that this world doesn't matter. This world is good. God created this world. Uh, he created us to live here. Sin is what messed up the world. Sin is what brought in these new metrics into God's perfect creation, and that sin makes us nearsighted. Is anyone here nearsighted? I'm nearsighted. Contact lenses? Yep, okay. Nearsighted people like me. I wear contact lenses. If I didn't have my contact lenses in, uh, I would not be able to see past my arm. Uh, all your faces would be blurry. All I can see is what's right in front of me, and I would not be able to drive a car. I would be a very dangerous person to be around, to only be able to see here, but not what's coming. And that's how we become spiritually. Uh, some, of, some people are financially nearsighted, so it's like spend, 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 spend. All we can see is what's right in front of us, and then what's coming out here comes, and we go, oh, wait, I spent too much. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. Now I have to pay. Now I have to pay, you know, these bills. But how much worse to be spiritually nearsighted to spend it all, time, talents, treasure, my life, on things that don't last, and then to be before the Lord and go, oh my goodness, I wasted my whole life on things that didn't matter. Even as Christians, even as Christians, we can do that. All right, jumping into the next couple of verses of First uh, Corinthians 2, it says, no, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no, uh, what, sorry, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. When I was a teenager, I used to think verse 9 was about heaven. Like, oh, that's what heaven, no, nobody's seen heaven, so God's prepared it for us. It's not about heaven. Uh, it's about the way Jesus came. The way he came in this, this weak, seemingly foolish way, the rulers of this age didn't understand it. Their minds could not conceive it. If a Messiah was going to come, the Messiah would come as a warrior. The Messiah would come as a politician. The Messiah would come as a celebrity. The Messiah would come with worldly metrics. They literally could not conceive the way Jesus came, and so they rejected him. And let's be honest, their power was threatened, and it's really hard to give up power. When Jesus comes to be in the place of power, and I'm in the place of power, I'm probably good. 
I'm probably not gonna give that power to Jesus. And they were not gonna give that power to Jesus. Verse 10 tells us the spirit actually reveals these hidden things to us. If we're Christians, we've seen the hidden ways of Jesus and we put our faith in him. But for us today in 2023, this has not changed about Jesus. His ways are still subversive. They are still upside down. Jesus' way is about upside down power. And what I mean by upside down power is his way is a way of surrender, it's a way of sacrifice, and it's a way of serving, serving God and others. It's a way of surrender, sacrifice, and serving. And Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. That we actually believe this is the path of true life is loving other people, not just loving myself and making everything revolve around me. Jesus' way is about upside down power. Uh, Verse 12, he says, what we have received is not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Now, whenever scripture talks about the world, the spirit of the world versus the spirit of God, I have flashbacks to my childhood growing up in my church, and there was like the really conservative fundamental churches, and then we were kind of like the next step over. Um, so we didn't do like the, the book burnings of Harry Potter and the burning of your cassette tapes of your rock and roll music. Uh, that happened, though, uh, in, in our little neck of the woods of conservative evangelicalism. Uh, and, and it was because of verses like this. That's the spirit of the world. It, you know, the world, the world, the world is, is bad. And I already said God didn't create the world bad. Um, sin is bad. The world, the world isn't bad. Um, but there's a tendency I have, and I think a lot of Christians, maybe in my generation have, and those following us, where I talk you know, about the pendulum a lot. When you're, when you're so far over on this end of the pendulum, what happens when you realize, oh, that, that's not really... I don't think God really cares about rock and roll cassette tapes all that much. Maybe we overblew that a little bit. We let the pendulum go, and it, it swings so far over this direction that I see a lot of Christians who are Christians in name, and they're living just like the world today. And there's been this new adoption of, of what I call cool Christianity, and it really looks a lot like the world in the way we live morally, the way we live sexually, the way we go to church, our, our spiritual practices, and, and so the point that I want to make here is that we still have to understand that there's a truth here in the Bible that we can't lose as we try to find maybe the healthy middle ground of what God is actually talking about here. There is a spirit of the world, and there is a spirit who is from God. And we as Christians have to remember that we aren't of this world in its value system and in its metrics. Trust rest in and obey God's spirit. We don't even talk a lot about obedience anymore in church because it feels oppressive. But when we go to follow Jesus, we're saying we're gonna follow you. We're gonna obey you and the things you tell us to do. I love this. This takes the pressure off of me that I don't have to trust in myself. I don't have to rest in myself. I can trust in God's spirit. I can rest in God's spirit. When things go bad, I can say, I'm trusting you, God. You're the one that got me into this, right? I gotta, I'm gonna rest in you. And I would encourage you to make this a part of your daily prayer time. Make this a part of your daily meditation with the Lord time. Help me obey your spirit, Lord. Help me know your metrics that I might live by them, not the metrics of this world.